Well, good morning, everybody. Morning. It's so good to see your warm smiles, because it is cold outside. It is gray, but I, I really uh, sense the warmth of Jesus in this space this morning. I'm thrilled to see you all here on this morning. And for those joining us online, a special welcome to you. Well, you know, this morning, we're going to look at an unusual story in the Bible. And we'll study its characters. And if this story was not in the Bible, I think it'd be kind of hard for us to believe that there is a story like the one that we're going to look at today. It's a painful story. It's a tragic story. But this story has a hopeful ending. It's a story about a man named Hosea and a woman named Gomer. And I've titled my message, Hosea, Gomer, and Us. A story of God's loyal love. Hosea, Gomer, and Us. A story of God's loyal love. And I want to give you a few minutes to make your way, if you have a Bible, to the book of Hosea. So go ahead and take your time, get to the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Hosea comes right after the book of Daniel. We'll also show some passages on the screen so you can follow along on the screen as well. But as you make your way there, find chapter 1 and just camp out there, and we'll read those passages in just a minute. But as you make your way there, if you allow me to say this, there's nothing you and I can do that would make God love us any more than he already does. There's nothing we can do. God already loves us as much as he can. And at the same time, God desires us to grow in our relationship with him. And oftentimes, growth requires discipline. And discipline is not always fun. Discipline takes work. Growth requires work and discipline on our part. And so keep that in mind as we make our way through this uh, most unusual, painful, tragic story. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So when the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. And you can take a look here on this map to show you the two divided kingdoms. You have Israel, the kingdom of Israel in the north, and the kingdom of Judah in the south. Hosea was a prophet in the north. And his contemporary, Isaiah, was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. And as we just read, Jeroboam was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel during Hosea's prophetic ministry. And during the 40-year reign of Jeroboam in the northern kingdom, Israel was enjoying prosperity. People were making lots of money. 
There was political stability in that area. It was a very safe place to live. And so you can look at it this way. If you were a young family and you wanted to find a stable place with some nice houses and good school districts and lots of jobs, the northern kingdom was for you. It was at the top of the list. And let's think about it. Here where we live, in our immediate communities, we have some of the most desirable school districts around, which draws young families. And that's reflected in the house prices, right? I mean, it is expensive to live around here, because if you want good schools, then that is reflected in the home prices. And so our area is not unlike Israel during the reign of Jeroboam. But after Jeroboam's death, the nation went into a downward spiral. Peace was replaced by violence. Money became scarce. The rich got very rich, and the poor were neglected. There was injustice, there was discrimination, and above all else, more than anything else, the people of God turned their backs on God. That's the picture here. That's the backdrop of the book of Hosea. And so God spoke to his children through the prophet Hosea. Now, when we think of the word prophet, what often comes to mind is uh, foretelling the future foretelling and predicting something that is yet to happen. And certainly, there is that aspect of a prophetic ministry talking about the future. But did you know that in the Old Testament, the vast majority of a prophet's ministry was actually preaching about what was happening at that time? And so God calls Hosea to preach about what's happening and to preach against sin. But what makes Hosea's story so unusual is that not only does God call Hosea to preach about what's happening, in essence, God says to Hosea, Hosea, I'm going to use your life as a moving picture of my people's unfaithfulness to me. Hosea, you are going to play the leading part in a tragic love story. So God says, Hosea, in this case, it's not enough for you simply to preach against what's going on. You are going to be the leading man in this terrible and yet hopeful story. And so God would turn Hosea's life upside down. He would call Hosea a faithful prophet, a messenger of God, a preacher of God. And he would call Hosea to enter into a marriage that you and I would find difficult to understand and just simply shocking. Let's pick it up in verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. 
For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So right in the middle of Hosea's prophetic ministry, he is called by God to enter into a marriage with a wife who would become unfaithful to him. And that, that is so hard for us to even imagine. It's incomprehensible. God tells this young prophet to go and enter into a marriage knowing fully well that his wife would become unfaithful. Not once. It wasn't a, oh, a one-time mistake. Repeatedly, she would be unfaithful to him. Now, before we move on, I want to make one thing very clear. The story of Hosea, the story of Gomer, it is not ultimately about the subject of marriage. And what I mean by that is this. I don't want us to walk away from the book of Hosea with this misunderstanding that this is somehow a marriage manual and that one spouse is obligated to the other even when unfaithfulness is involved. That is not the message here. So please don't confuse that. The story of Hosea and Gomer is about this. It's about a faithful God and an unfaithful people. That's the message. A faithful God and an unfaithful people. And yes, there are good godly principles that we can and should apply from the book of Hosea into all of our relationships, into our marriages, yes, but also into our relationships with loved ones, our children, our siblings, our parents, our friends, our co-workers, and yes, our church community as well. But the reason why God uses marriage to paint this picture is because, let's face it, there's no other relationship like marriage. It is comprehensive. It is intense. There are highs and lows. It is intimate. So there's no other relationship like marriage, which is why God uses this relationship to depict a faithful God and an unfaithful people. And the hope in this tragic love story is that God does not give up on his people. As we say, he will never let go despite their repeated unfaithfulness to him. And that holds true not only in ancient Israel, it holds true for us today. God remains faithful even in the midst of our unfaithfulness to him. And yet, there are consequences to our disobedience. You know, when you enter and you look at the cross on Sunday mornings, I want you to recognize two things. The cross revealed two things about God. So every time you enter in, if you can remember these two things, the cross reveals God's attitude towards sin. 
You see, a price had to be paid. And Jesus paid that price for us. And the second thing that the cross reveals about God is his merciful compassion toward our unfaithfulness. A price had to be paid. And God, in his mercy, sent his son to die on that cross. I find it amazing that God chooses to love me. It's really amazing that God chooses to love us. What we do or what we don't do will not change the way he loves us. But again, sin has its consequences in our lives. And so when it was time for Hosea to name his firstborn, God had a message for his people. Look at verse 4 in chapter 1. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. Here's a question. What's in a name? What's in a name? Well, earlier in our series, we learned that names are very significant, right? When we studied the book of Ruth, we saw the significance of names. In the Hebrew culture, names are very important. And so God told Hosea to name his firstborn son Jezreel. That might not mean much to us today, but the word Jezreel, it means to scatter. And there's a reason why God told Hosea to name his son Scatter. Because the Jezreel Valley was a place where bloody massacres were carried out for hundreds of years. Jezreel became synonymous with murder and violence. And God says to Hosea, you are to name your son Jezreel. Can you imagine Hosea's son asking him, Daddy, what does my name mean? Well, why do you ask, son? Well, because all the kids stare at me. They give me dirty looks. You see, Jezreel was a sign of judgment. That's why Hosea was to name his son Jezreel. This was God's warning to his people. But Israel did not heed the warning. So what happens next? Look at verse 6. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Go down to verse 8. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now, I know it sounds like God has given up on Israel, but he has not, okay? We have to stick around to the end. The word Ruhamah means compassion, mercy, loved. 
You put a low in front of it, and it's just the opposite. No compassion shown. No mercy shown. You are not loved. And so Hosea's daughter would be named not loved. Hosea's youngest son named not my people. What does this mean? When Jezreel, Lo Ruhamah, and Lo Amin were born, this was God's way of saying to his people, I'm going to give you what you want. This is what you have asked for. You see, Israel wanted to be like all the other nations. They saw all the surrounding nations. Israel, they worshiped God, Yahweh, but they thought, wait a minute, how come all these other nations have so many other gods? We want to worship Yahweh, but we also want to worship all the other gods as well. So God granted them their wish. Israel had left their first love. She had forgotten her husband. So God calls Hosea, the prophet, to take Gomer as his wife, a woman who would eventually live a life of promiscuity. She would leave Hosea. She would leave their three children. And she would become immersed in cultic practices, and specifically Baal worship, B-A-A-L. And so Hosea was left to raise his three children alone. This was a symbol of what God's people had done to him. You see, God's people had committed the sin of what we call syncretism. Syncretism is basically uh, just blending loyalties of several different gods, mixing and matching. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Now the question is, how was Israel exposed to this syncretism? It all began when the Israelites settled in the land of the Canaanites. The Israelites, by trade, they were nomadic herdsmen. They didn't have a lot of experience planting crops. So they observed the Canaanites, who were great farmers. So they watched the Canaanites go and plant crops. But then the Canaanites would call out to all their gods, including Baal, the storm god the God of rain. So the Israelites observed this, and they thought, wait a minute. Yes, we worship Yahweh, but let's ensure prosperity, and let's worship all the other gods. And as the years went by, God's people became more entrenched in Baal worship. Here's the question. What led them down this path? That's an important question. What led God's people down this path of syncretism? It was this. They had become discontent. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, they became discontent. We saw that earlier in our series. Just like Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, became discontent. 
and prematurely moved his family to Moab. God's people wanted more, so they depended less on God and more on themselves and on other gods. They distanced themselves from Yahweh. They became less dependent on him. They left their true love, and they were seduced by other gods. Now let's bring it here to the 21st century. How about us? How about us and discontentment? Sometimes we find ourselves feeling a little discontent. God, why isn't this happening in my life yet? God, why am I not experiencing what they are experiencing? God, why don't I have what others have? And then we start to think this way. I'll be happy when. I'll be happy when. Well, guess what? A discontent single person will become a discontent married person. A discontent person making a small salary will become a discontent person making a big salary. And a discontent person living in a small home will find ways to become discontent living in a big home. It'll become something like this. It'll go like this. It'll, it'll start with, this place is too small. I need more space to then... There are too many rooms to clean. If we're discontent now, we will find ways to be discontent then. The phrase, I'll be happy when, it can lead us down a path that strays farther and farther from God. And in the case of Hosea and Gomer, Gomer found herself discontent in her marriage. So she went seeking for pleasure elsewhere. But let's see what God's message is, not to Gomer, but to Hosea. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Here's the message to Hosea. The Lord said to me in chapter 3, verse 1, Go, show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Now, raisin cakes here, you might think, well, what's wrong with raisin cakes? It's, it's in reference to a dried fruit. Okay? There's nothing wrong with dried fruit. I love dried fruit. I have raisins in my oatmeal every morning. So that's not the issue here. In this case, though, raisin cakes, dried fruit, was used in ceremonies in Baal worship. Just another example of God's, un, God's people's unfaithfulness to him. And the choice that Yahweh is making to love his own people is the same choice that Hosea has to make to love his wife again. Though she left him, though she was unfaithful to him, 
His call is to go after her and love her, even though she does not deserve reconciliation. Now again, the subject at hand is not marriage per se. It's about a faithful God and an unfaithful people. We do not deserve reconciliation, but God comes after us. God commands Hosea to demonstrate a persistent, active, unconditional love, a love that transcends any feelings. Now, that's not to say that we can't have feelings if we've been betrayed. That's not to say that we can't have feelings if we've been wronged by somebody else. Every one of us here in this room today, and everyone watching online, with no exception, every one of us has felt the pain of being wounded by someone else, by being betrayed by someone else. Every one of us. And those wounds can be deep. Have you ever been wounded by someone so deeply that you feel it in the pit of your stomach? We all have. And God's message to Hosea is this. Hosea, that's how I feel every time my people sin against me. And Hosea, you are going to feel that pain. You are going to live that pain. You're going to be a living example of the pain that I feel. And yet, every time we sin, God chooses to love us unconditionally. That's why we are to love with an unconditional love. You see, because if we wait until we feel like loving somebody, we're going to be waiting a long time. If we wait to forgive someone until we feel like forgiving them, we're going to wait a very long time. Time and time again, God's people wounded him. And what makes it even worse is how they tried to appease God. I want to give you a handful of examples of the way God's people wounded him and yet tried to appease him. I'm going to start in chapter 6, verse 6. Turn over to chapter 6, verse 6. After sinning against God over and over again, here's how God's people approached God. God, and then his response to them. He says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So time and time again, God's people turned from him. They forgot his law. They worshiped idols. They made political friends with any nation who would be their ally. They would team up with any nation against other nations. They exploited the poor. Injustice was everywhere. Discrimination everywhere. And time and time again, God's people would then go to the temple and offer sacrifices. Oh, God's going to forgive us. We just have to go and offer sacrifices. I'm going to give you just a handful of examples of how they wounded God. Go to chapter 7. And look at verse 4. 
Chapter 7, verse 4 says this. They are all adulterers, burning like an oven whose fire the baker need not stir from the kneading of the dough till it rises. Now, each of these three examples I'm going to give you from chapter 7, and they'll all need explanation because it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense reading it just like this. The picture being painted here is one of being overheated. So think overheated. When we think of the word overheated, certain images come to mind, and they're all bad. An overheated engine, bad. A fever, bad. Even an overcooked steak, bad. I'm sorry for those who like your steaks well done, but that's bad. Overheated is synonymous with bad. And the immediate picture is this. In ancient Israel, during the time of Hosea, the baker would start a fire in the oven early in the morning so that the fire would settle down later on in time for the baker to put in dough. The initial flame in the morning is this out-of-control, fiery flame, flames shooting straight up, uncontrolled, smoke everywhere. You couldn't put dough in the oven in that state. That was the picture of Israel trying to make political alliances with any nation who would say yes. And throughout their history, this is what happened. They took on this mentality of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they would just randomly, hey, we want to go against this nation, so we'll befriend that nation. The other season, we'll befriend that nation to go against that nation. They were out of control. Here's another example. Chapter 7, verse 8. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat loaf not turned over. Ephraim was God's nickname for Israel. Again, this requires some explanation. If the word picture in the first example was being overheated, the word picture here is that of being half-baked. Does anybody here like pancakes? I love pancakes, all right? Pancakes, fluffy, with butter and syrup and banana slices and powdered sugar. Let's go eat. I love some pancakes. But imagine if you went to your favorite breakfast spot one morning, and the cook decided for whatever reason that morning, I'm going to serve you your pancakes sunny side up. Yes. Ew. Sunny side up works for eggs, not pancakes. But the image was this. The loaf was charred and burnt on the bottom, and it was a mess on top. And that was a picture of Israel. On the bottom side, they were charred, burnt, because of all their false hope toward other nations. And then they were soggy toward God. It's a very vivid picture. Here's one more example. Verse 16. 
They do not turn to the Most High. They are like a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. For this they will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. The word picture here is that of being defective, a faulty bow. A faulty bow is good for nothing. And, and what this reminds me of is, well, I tried to think of a, an illustration, and a faulty bow is kind of like this. It's like a bad shopping cart. You know what I'm talking about? You go to the market, and you get a shopping cart. It always wants to pull to one side. No matter how hard you try, it just pulls you to one side. And the worst part is when the wheel just shakes violently, right? It, it, that's the picture here. It's good for nothing. A faulty bow is good for nothing. For the nation of Israel at that time, as a bow, they got warped. They had turned away from God. And when they needed God the most... They went through the motions and they offered sacrifices. It's like the person feeling guilty and dropping some money in an offering basket, hoping God would be appeased. They did that time and time again. They thought, God's going to intervene. We just have to go through our rituals of sacrifices and offerings. And God says, I desire mercy. I do not want your sacrifices. God pleads with his people. You see, he wants them to see their hypocrisy. He does not want their sacrifices. He wants their hearts. He wants their minds. He wants their souls. And he wants them to love each other. And he wants them to seek the good of their neighbors. That was the message through Hosea. And guess what? That's the same message today. God wants our hearts. He does not need our sacrifices. He wants our hearts. He wants our minds. He wants our souls. He wants us to love one another. And he wants us to do good for our neighbors. Guess what? Right there, that's the summary of the two greatest commandments, right? That's it. It's the two greatest commandments. He wants our hearts, our minds, our souls. And he wants us to love each other and to do good to our neighbors. I'm going to close with one final passage in chapter 11. Verses 1 through 4. As I read this passage... I'm going to have us shift our picture from husband-wife to now parent-child. So think parent and child as I read chapter 11, starting in verse 1. When Egypt, I'm sorry, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the hand, by the arms. 
but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. I still remember when our kids were very young, the, the, the most enjoyable pictures were when I would lift them up cheek to cheek. And when your cheek touches your little child's cheek, there's really no greater feeling. Except maybe when your child gets a little bit older and walks with you hand in hand. There's certain milestones children go through. And when a little child grabs your hand and walks next to you, there's a sense of trust and dependence. Throughout the Bible, the picture of walking with God is synonymous with trusting God. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. The message of Hosea is about a faithful God and an unfaithful people. God has not given up on his people. His is a loyal love. And I hope this will put it into perspective. I'm going to close with an excerpt from an article written by author Philip Yancey. And in this article, he describes a conversation he had with a friend who was painfully waiting for his troubled son to come back home. Listen as I read. I remember one afternoon in Chicago, sitting in an outdoor restaurant and listening to a broken man tell the story of his prodigal son. Jake, the son, couldn't keep a job. He wasted all his money on drugs and alcohol. He rarely called home and he brought little joy and much grief to both parents. My friend, Jake's father, felt helpless. If only I could bring him back and shelter him and try to show how much I love him, he said. He paused to gain control of his voice and then added, the strange thing is, even though he rejects me, Jake's love means more to me than my other three responsible children. Odd, isn't it? That's how love is. Now, maybe you've never thought of God's love as being odd, but this past week I decided to look up the definition of odd. And here's one definition that stood out to me. Odd means different from what is usual or expected. Different from what is usual or expected. If that's what odd is, then God's love is certainly odd because it is different than what is expected. It is different than what is usual because what is usual today is this. If you love me, I will love you. If you do good to me, I will do good to you. 
It is conditional. God's love is odd. It is so odd. It is so different. He loves us in the most unexpected ways. In our take-home application for this week, with Christmas coming around, with family gatherings, I know you all have some odd family members. The takeaway is this. If God loves us oddly, he calls us to love that same way. To love those who don't love us. To love those who are at odds with us. To love those who we find very difficult to forgive. A faithful God and an unfaithful people. But we have the opportunity to be like God. He wants our hearts, our minds, our souls, and he wants us to love each other and to do good to our neighbors. Can we do that this week? Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the book of Hosea, as painful as that story is. It really depicts, depicts in the only way possible your love for us. The very name Hosea means salvation. Jesus Christ was born and he brought with him salvation. So we thank you for this season. We thank you for the precious gift we have in Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.